and welcome to Beer Genics. I'm Alex. And I'm Kelton. And today we are taking a look at the 2008 Canadian movie Pontypool. Pantypool. Pont du Flac. Pont de Flac. How'd you like it? It was okay. It was, uh, I'm admittedly not the biggest horror fan, but I enjoyed the movie. It's, it's a weird one. I mean, I feel like you kind of have to appreciate horror in all its forms before you can watch something this abstract and obtuse and appreciate it. In many ways, it's not actually outside of my wheelhouse in terms of movies I enjoy. Um, but I think something that made it a little bit more unusual for me is that it's pretty low budget. It's lower budget than most movies I watch. About $1.5 million, I'd say. It, they make that budget stretch, though. I mean, it really doesn't at any point feel like you're sacrificing quality to make to to save money um it is all in one location for you know 99 percent of the movie but i don't think that hurts it i honestly think it makes it stronger they really built the movie around it being in one location and you're kind of trapped in this radio station yeah in many ways i think the constraints sort of made the movie better i think there were a few compromises namely um the zombies uh are not as impressive as I think uh, zombies could be in a higher budget movie. They are pretty, pretty slow and dumb and weak and not very scary. But they, I mean, they killed one person. I think in the entire movie. Yeah. Well, at least, at least some of them are slow. There, there's one or two that have a little bit of speed in them. I'm curious, how many times have you watched this movie now? Including last night when I watched the director's commentary, that puts it at seven. Seven times I've watched this film. Oh my. You know what's funny is when we started this project, I hadn't seen the movie, but now that we're recording it, I think I've seen it five times. I've nearly caught up. How did the fifth watch compare to your first watch? Very different. When you watch a movie over and over, you you don't even pay attention to the same things. The things I was looking at in the first movie are not at all what I was looking at the last take. When the first watch, you're trying to understand the story. You're trying to understand what's going on. You're trying to know what the characters are saying. Like you need to read what they're saying on subtitles sometimes. So it's not like you're fully engrossed in the movie. But by the third or fourth watch, you understand the story. You know exactly the key points that the movie's going to hit. And you can look at all the tertiary details surrounding it. Like, you know, certain lines that stand out, certain actions, foreshadowing. Yeah, you can get a really good look at the performances. Um or even details, like the way they introduce the different characters. In this movie, it's done with just one or two lines of exposition, which I think was done for the purpose of the audio version of this movie, which we'll talk about later. But it was an interesting choice. You don't see that in a lot of movies. This one had a little bit more tell rather than show, but it was necessary for this story, and I think it worked okay. Absolutely. So before we get too far into this conversation, I want to go ahead and recap the movie. This movie starts Steve McCaddy, uh, as Grant Mazzy, a Mr. Mazzy, Mr. Mazzy, a DJ, like a stereotypical, you turn on the radio right now, you'll probably hear somebody just like him on the radio. He's sort of a no holds bars, tell all old man with a deep voice on the radio. He's kind of an asshole too. Yeah. He's, a, he's an asshole. He's a bit of a rebel. He's constantly fighting with Do- his producer. Doesn't like the police. Doesn't like the government. Yes. All of that. Very fringe man. So he's rolling into work and we're introduced to Laurel Ann Drummond, played by Georgina Riley, who... She's a vet. She's a vet in the movie. And it's sort of hinted at a few times that um, later in the movie, they talk about her having PTSD for just one line. It's very strange. I actually missed that, like, my first two or three watches, so... 
it has it's very small minute detail zero bearing on the story but an interesting choice uh laurel land gives him a bottle of whiskey which is where we learn first about grant's drinking problem on the show the bottle of whiskey is i would say almost a character throughout the whole movie now the the gift of the whiskey do you know do you know why she gave him that gift it's valentine's day so he could Drink himself to death on Valentine's Day because he's a lonely, bitter old man, probably. Man, I can't think of a sweeter gift. <laughs> Just to get drunk in this recording booth of a radio station on Valentine's Day while you talk about school closures. And... Or not talk about school closures. I wish you'd talk about school closures. People got to get to school. <laughs> what we're referencing here is after Grant gets his bottle of whiskey and sits down in his studio to begin recording for the day, we're introduced to his producer, Sydney Breyer, who is played by Lisa Howe. And Sydney and Grant have, uh, they butt heads throughout the movie. The producer, Sydney, wants him to say things like school closures, just normal radio things. It's a pretty classic example of the talent versus producer dichotomy of the producer just wants to get through the run of show, just wants to get the information out, have a good radio station broadcast. Whereas Grant Mazzi, He's the talent. He's a little avant-garde. He's a little left field. And he likes to speak his mind, even whenever he's supposed to be talking about something as simple and easy as school closures. Yes, and we get a sense that this is actually Grant's, maybe not first day, but definitely he's new to the job. They don't quite know each other, and he is still trying to establish who he is on the station, as well as the station trying to like wrangle who he is so they're not offending everybody on the radio. As with any new workplace, you kind of have to settle in. You have to get used to who you're around, and they have to get used to you. So for the first 20 minutes of the film, we basically just have Grant and Sydney butting heads with Laurel Ann in the background sort of being like the smart producer handling all the technical stuff. Eventually, we get a call from a guy named Ken Loney. What was his, what's the actor's name? Rick Roberts. Ken Loney is in the Sunshine Chopper reporting on the weather, which Grant immediately thinks it's suspicious that there's a chopper up in what in the movie is a pretty bad snowstorm. I walk, we go to Ken Loney in the sunshine chopper. It's always brighter above the clouds, Grant. Hey, Ken, how you doing? How, how are things in that bird up there? Are you going to stay in that bird up there during the storm? Yes, sir. Yes, siree. Well, that can't be safe. Is that safe, Ken? Well, I'll be up here, Grant. Not good flying weather. Well, at the beginning of the movie, we're talking about school closures, so it's bad enough that people in Canada who are used to snow are not going to school. Yes. Very bad weather. I mean, you saw Grant driving in it the morning on his way to work. It did not look good. No, it looked very bad. So when we're introduced to Ken, he is telling us about a, well, first he just gives us the weather. Yep. Very, very normal Ken Sunshine Chopper conversation. We get a baseline Ken. And as the story goes, we end up getting another phone call from Ken, where it seems to be a large group of people have gathered around a doctor's office here in Pontypool, the office of a Dr. Mendez. And this is very strange for a small Canadian town. A lot of, a horde of people outside of a doctor's office basically beating the door down. And at this point, the illusion of Ken being in the chopper breaks, uh, because Ken is actually, as Sydney says, in his Dodge Dart making helicopter sounds and the illusion breaks because ken is suddenly fearing for his life he needs to get out of there and it's our first sense in the movie that something has gone terribly wrong for the first half of the movie ken is definitely the guy who pushes the bad things happening ken calls and every time it gets progressively worse and worse he calls in at first tells the the weather 
calls in again, talks about the doctor's office being raided by a horde of people. And then he calls a third time and he's basically hiding in a grain silo. Yeah, he's hiding in a grain silo with what appears to be, well, we can't see it, but what he describes as a man whose hands are missing. He has stumps on his hands, he's bloody, and he's sort of babbling incoherently. But before we go any further, I want to just sort of talk about the way the movie is framed at this point. We never see Ken. We're inside the studio the whole time. And he calls in. Yes. But from an editing standpoint, it's really interesting. Ken is basically just a waveform on one of the pieces of equipment in the studio. And we're using that to generate reaction shots from every other character. It's really fascinating how we have basically a waveform telling us the story. And for maybe five minutes, we just have characters reacting to the waveform. It's a very uncommon decision in a movie, I feel like, for a character to be important and moving along the plot while we also don't know what he looks like to any way, shape, or form. No. And in fact, basically the entirety of the first part of the movie takes place outside of the studio. The zombie outbreak, all the phone calls, we're getting it from the radio jockey perspective and not quite from the listener's perspective because we can see what's happening in the studio, but very close to what you would know if you were just listening to Radio 660 in Pontypool that morning. You really do feel like you're along for the ride with Grant and the team at the studio because the information that they're getting, you're also getting at the same exact time. So you and the, the audience and Grant and everyone else are all trying to figure out what the hell is going on at Pontypool at the same exact time. One of my favorite moments actually punctuates Ken's phone call about the man in the grain silo. Ken is delivering dialogue about the boy in the silo and how his hands are missing when his phone call is interrupted by a police broadcast uh, or maybe a military broadcast in French. And uh, none of the characters at this moment sort of speak French except for Laurel Ann, who immediately starts transcribing it. It's, it sounds like an official, scary military radio thing it, like something's obviously wrong if you're hearing this military intervention has stepped in to deal with whatever is going on at pontypool the small town of pontypool yes where nothing ever nothing bad ever happened so laura land translates this message and gives it to grant and it basically says stay in your homes there's a quarantine in effect and the message ends as grant says and don't translate this into english for greater safety please avoid the English language. Please do not translate this message. And you could see the fear in Grant's eyes as he realizes he just did he the just one thing. He just spoke the words that he wasn't supposed to speak. Exactly. And this is our first inclination that the virus is connected to language, I think, at this point. It's a very interesting concept, and we'll talk about it more once we kind of figure it out fully. But the fact that this zombie virus is transmitted via the English language is something that is absolutely bizarre. I've never seen in any kind of movie before, um, especially a zombie horror movie. No, I don't think I've seen anything that has quite this premise. It's fascinating and horrifying once you see how it actually takes hold in people. Which we do pretty soon, right? Yeah, so once Ken uh, gets on the phone and tells us about the boy in the silo, the movie sort of hits the gas for the remainder, I think. Once we find out about the zombies and the people and sort of discover what they're capable of, we see it for ourselves for the first time in the movie. There's a lot that happens right after that message is transcribed by Grant. The doctor, who 
had his office completely overwhelmed by people, crawls across the frozen expanse of Pontypool and opens a window in the radio station and crawls through. Yes, Dr. Mendez, uh, the goofiest character in the entire movie. His entrance is truly ridiculous. The way he crawls in through the movie, it's like it's acted comedically. Like this wasn't like a struggle for him to like crawl on his hands and knees and like pop open through the window. It's like he does it so effortlessly and he just sort of rolls in and he knows exactly what to do. And and he he jumps straight up and he's ready to explain this virus and tell everyone what's going on. Truly he is a cartoon character. Yes, which makes it so much it like contrasts the tragedy that's happening at the same time as Laurel Land is taken by the virus. Laurel Land at the same time as Dr. Mendez climbing through this window and being an absolute fool. Laurel Land is standing in one corner of the room, mimicking the sound of a teapot that is ready. Now before she does that, she delivers a few line of dialogue where we can see her her words start to get confusing and she's saying things that she doesn't mean and she doesn't understand why. So it's a very interesting concept, like I said, of a virus taking root via the English language. And more or less, what happens when this virus takes hold is that it disconnects the brain from the body. You might be saying something, but it's not actually what your brain is telling you to say. There's a very interesting note that the director, Bruce, gave Georgina, the actor for Laurel Land, for this scene. Basically, what's happening is she's speaking as the virus takes hold. And she's trying to say that Mr. Mazzy is missing and that she has to find Mr. Mazzy. Mr. Mazzy being Grant Mazzy, the host. And as she's saying this, she starts to stumble. She starts to stutter. She can't say what she's trying to say. Now, in order to accomplish this, in order to make the transition from a normal person to a zombie look like something was taking place, the director wrote two sets of dialogue for Laurel Land. One of what she's trying to say, and one of what she actually says in the film, which is a bunch of rambling stutters and mumbles and random words. And then all of it comes to a head once she realizes she can't actually say the word she's supposed to say, and she claps her hand over her mouth, basically stopping all communication. Missing. 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 I mean, Mr. Mazzy. Mr. Mazzy's missing as in because he's not here well honey is in the sound booth yeah i know i just okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go that's really the last time we see laurel ann as herself it takes over very quickly i'd say in movie time maybe 15 seconds and then dr mendez and sydney retreat into the recording booth yes uh dr mendez rolls in he's like i've seen this before and he takes Sydney, and, and they go to the recording booth, where Dr. Mendez becomes basically a co-host of the show. Now, this whole time, Grant is on air, basically informing Pontypool about what's going on. And once Dr. Mendez sits down, we get into this sort of... Um, the, the, the puzzle of what's happening starts to reveal itself, because Dr. Mendez has all of the answers. Dr. Mendez is a pretty old-time plot device in a movie where... He, he's basically a trope. He comes in... He has all the answers to all the questions that everyone in the film has had, and he's there to answer them. Yeah, and, and I read a quote from uh, Bruce McDonald that it's basically intentional. He just wanted that sort of aspect in his film, which 
I personally didn't love the way it was included, but you know, it, it, it's okay. It's very wacky. It's very goofy. It comes out of left field, and wherever you thought the movie was going before, it instantly takes a left turn. Very much so. The, the movie reveals itself uh, and sort of the puzzle of what's going on relatively early into the movie. I think at this point we're maybe 40 minutes into an hour and a half movie. And it goes very quick after that. The next hour goes by probably just as fast as the first 30 minutes. Oh, yeah. Well, I would say it pumps on the brakes a little bit once they get locked in a room. Right. But before we get there, uh, we see Laurel Ann sort of lose herself and start to bang her body against the window as she tries to break in and presumably kill the rest of uh, Sydney and Grant and Dr. Mendez. What Mendez explains that Laurelan is going through is she's basically a crude radio signal at that point. She's chasing sound. She's chasing some kind of transmission, some kind of frequency, something that is vocalized that she can pick up and consume. And I guess the word that, that Mr. Mendez used, or Dr. Mendez used, was suicide into yeah he describes them as looking for somebody to suicide into and if they can't find somebody to suicide into it does he say they suicide into themselves they suicide into themselves which is such a strange phrase (laughs) i can't say i've ever seen anyone suicide into themselves before now i think this is the point where we start to get a lot more traditional horror elements uh you can't really tell in the movie but it's mentioned in the audio version of this that laurel ann uh, as kelton says is looking for uh, like waves, like sound waves, and she starts destroying audio equipment by chewing on it and eating on it. She's her face is really torn up at this point. Her her mouth is all bloody. There's blood dripping down her chin. And as she slams her face into this sort of glass uh, studio box, it's just starting to get covered more and more with blood. It gets pretty nasty towards the end. It do- it gets incredibly nasty. It, it basically becomes like a mural of just dried blood stuck on this clear partition in a recording booth. We can see Laurel and getting more and more frantic as this happens to the point where she knocks herself out pretty much at one point, falls to the floor, gets up, and then she stands in front of the window and like pukes. And when I say puke, I don't mean like normal puke. It's like she's throwing up her guts. Like it was an entire, like a geyser erupted out of this woman and her guts and blood and puke just flies all over this built, this, this screen right in front of them which it's pretty tragic because i think out of every character in the movie laurel ann has been the most grounded and lovable character absolutely there's actually literally nothing that we have seen as an audience to to not like laurel ann drummond she literally her first few seconds on screen she gives grant a gift and this is the character that not only dies dies first and i would argue dies worst compared to everybody it's else disgusting. in the film. It's disgusting. It's yeah. horrifying. What a what an awful way to go for like such a lovable character. So as she is banging her body against the window, the studio begins to fill with the rest of the townspeople, uh, presumably under the effects of this virus. So by the time Laurel Ann is dead, the studio is absolutely packed full of zombies. By break-in, they basically break like two windows and open doors. And it's overwhelmed with zombies, like, yes. like 10 zombies. And I would, I would say this is where the low budget starts to show, because I would, the makeup on the zombies is pretty bad. It looks like a bunch of people they, who They went out to Dollar bed. General, and then they went on the Halloween aisle, and they bought some fake blood, and 
like some really gross like fake skin makeup and i i think even the the glass breaking shows the low budget because it's not like a big pane of glass that's breaking it's like these little windows of glass and like a door and it's like maybe they bought like five that were able to be punched through like it's they only really... break like two or three of these little window panes yeah they that... don't even break all of them like they can't even like and, and, and no windows break like no big piece of glass breaks i'd say that whole scene cost them like 200 bucks you know what's hilarious now that i'm thinking about it there is absolutely zero destruction of property anywhere in this movie presumably because uh, this was shot on an actual location this is a real functioning radio station that was probably kind of important to this town because i mean just an aside Pontypool, Canada sounds like a pretty remote place. I feel like radio is kind of important there. Now, I do want to say this was not filmed in Pontypool. Really? Uh, I don't remember where it was filmed, but I'm pretty sure it's not Pontypool. I remember there was a, uh, a story that the director said he was driving past a sign with his wife, and that's how he named the, he named the movie. He literally just saw it like, oh, that's a cool looking name. Gonna name my movie after that. Even though the book is named Pontypool Changes Everything? Maybe it was the writer that said that i don't know i couldn't tell their voices apart on the director's commentary <laughs> oh so actually i'm curious was uh tony burgess the writer who wrote the uh original novel uh pontypool changes everything i believe this is actually pontypool changes everything is the second in a trilogy um he also adapted the uh script for this which is a nice touch i think he's i mean he's the most informed on the lore of the town so having him as a part of the project was really nice and you said he was on the director's commentary yes him and the director were the the two guys on the director's commentary i listened to the director's commentary maybe on my like third watch through and i'll be honest i did not care for it that much it was probably one of the worst director's commentaries i've ever listened to and that's nothing against tony and bruce uh, the, he he the books that they wrote are good the movie's good it's just the director's commentary itself uh they're very scatterbrained the first 20 minutes they talk about the movie very loosely and then they start talking about the sequels. They start talking about Pontypool 2 and Pontypool 3. And I swear, they talk about Pontypool 2 and 3 more than the actual movie that they're doing a director's commentary on. So based off of my research, they've at least Bruce has really publicly wanted to get Pontypool 2 and 3 off the ground in some capacity over the past decade. And I don't know what's stopping production here, but I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't either. Because Stephen McCaddy, he's getting pretty old. He is. He's 74 at the time of this recording. Which is a shame, because I think there's maybe more to explore in this universe. But I think, fortunately, and we're getting a little bit off track here, but this universe, I think, can be explored in ways other than in a movie. I think there could very easily be an audio adaptation for a sequel, just like there was for this. Or, I mean, even if you like Pontypool, I guess you could go read the books. Which I might, honestly, considering. So bringing us back on track, once the zombies infiltrate the studio, our main characters... Grant and Sydney and Dr. Mendez have to figure out a way to escape the sound booth. And they decide to try and pull the zombies away from the sound booth by using a speaker mounted to the exterior of the studio, which I might say is the fifth shot in the entire movie of an exterior. It, I feel like three of the five shots were like that little siren thing too, that little speaker. Yes. Like that, that's like something they're proud of is that little speaker hanging on the side of the building. <laughs> we get a shot of Grant Mazzy's parking space, the little speaker, Grant in his car, and then like a close up of Grant in his car. And I think that's every shot that that's takes all we place needed. outside the studio. That's all the exteriors that were necessary. 
So the, the characters are actually pretty smart in this moment. I like this. They need a way to distract the zombies, but they also know that the zombies repeat whatever they hear. So they decide the way they distract them can also be a way to communicate a message. And the message they choose is Sydney Briar is alive. Sydney Briar is alive. Sydney Briar is alive. Is alive. Sydney Briar is alive. I love that line. It is such a good line. I'd I'd go so far as to say this is the most iconic line of the film. Absolutely. Um, I feel like they could have named this movie Sydney Briar is Alive if they wanted to. Oh, absolutely. That'd be a great name for a movie. So I find it so fascinating then that Sydney Briar is Alive is not actually in the audio version of this movie. Uh, this movie was adapted for radio, and uh, that line is missing, which it's, I don't know why. It doesn't have to be missing. They could have done it. Maybe in the audio it's because version. they go outside after, like, they leave the booth, and it's, they're trying to pull them away from the booth so they could leave the booth, and, and then the audio version, they're not trying to leave the booth. Yeah, but I, I feel like it's so, it's so important that, like, they could have incorporated it in some way. The, the audio version. You know, the characters can't really move around too much because you can't see them. Yeah. But it, it, it was a little bit of a disappointment to listen to it and not hear that line. Um, but it works. The zombies are pulled out of the studio, presumably just back outside. And very polite zombies. Uh, I only noticed this, I think, on my last watch through. But, like, they, they closed all the doors on the way out as well. Yeah. That, if you're a low-budget zombie, that's what you do. You're respectful of the place you're shooting at. <laughs> so, once the zombies... Uh, leave grant and sydney uh make their escape into a uh how would you describe the room um just a storage room yeah it's like a like a broom closet there's just random shit all on the shelves and it's not a very spectacular room it's actually isn't it the same room that dr mendez climbs in you know i didn't think it was but i think they have that same window I think that window is in the corner of the room. That would be hilarious if they just redecorated the room to make it look like a closet. And In retrospect, I think that's what they did. <laughs> probably, I'm pretty sure that window is the same window in the corner. There's probably not that many rooms with windows in this radio station. No, no. But as they're running, the characters, Grant and Sydney, get attacked by a little girl who we meet earlier in the movie. Uh, who did During a, the Lawrence of Arabia scene. The Lawrence of Arabia with scene. With blackface. is hilarious it's so funny in such a dark movie like Kelton said scott blackface which is such a wild choice there's no reason for it in a movie made in 2008 but anyway it's this little girl she's like maybe 15 like in blackface who's now a zombie who tackles grant the camera shows them falling to the floor and then we get a shot that grant steps up into and starts kicking the little girl and then we have what appears to be a jump cut where it's the same frame but grant is missing but we still hear the audio of the fight. And then we have another jump cut where now Grant and Sydney are kicking the little girl. It is such a strange editing decision. It's incredibly jarring, in my opinion. It, it almost feels like they didn't have coverage. Yeah, it feels like they missed something there in production. There had to have been something that went wrong in, po- in, in production to where in post they had to make this weird decision that they probably understood didn't look right but they did it because that was the only choice they had. This is a low-budget movie, after all. Yeah, I mean, it's very plausible that in a a movie like this, that corners are cut, and sometimes you can't anticipate all the issues you're going to have until post. We'll fix it in post. Ah, man. They fixed it in post. The bane of every editor. 
they kind of fixed it in post. I'll, I'll say they they could they could write it off as like ah oh, it's weird and experimental, but um I think it's just jarring. The and experimental a jump cut. That I don't think the camera is even framed up exactly the same in it's each not. shot. Whenever it cuts to the clear, it's actually reframed a little. Like they went back and shot it again or something. So weird. And like as an editor myself, like I almost wonder like why would I need to like I feel like I could have done it better. Like just matching up the alignments of the shot, it's really strange. Just turning this, just rotating the image a little bit, and but that's to say, like I'm sure anybody watching it thinks like, oh, I could fix it, but like I'm sure there is a good reason it is. They the probably is. spent a whole day on this, and we're not realizing the the pain that they experienced with these the short little fight sequence. No, there is there is a a pained editor somewhere in the history of this I, movie. I, I believe that. This is an, a well-edited movie, and this is the only point where there's a weird mishap. And I truly believe it might have just been beyond saving, and they had to move on. All this to say, I think the movie moves on from it pretty quickly. It's a slight blip on an otherwise pretty good sequence where they run into... I, I just said pretty good, but I actually have one more thing to complain about. They run into this closet, and behind them we have Dr. Mendez speed walking um, in front of a group of zombies. Uh, so we have a... Dr. Mendez is not what I consider like a fast or agile man. It's about the speed of, you know, middle, middle-aged women speed walking on the sidewalk, getting their, their daily exercise. Yes. It was, it was just a power, power jaunt, just a, a strong... And, be, and strong, behind him like... 10 zombies chasing him. A strong walk while your life is in danger. (laughs) And he rushes into the room with them where they uh, sort of barricade up the door um, and he crawls out the window. And I didn't realize this on the first watch, but he's actually saving them. On the first watch, I thought he was just escaping. I didn't pick up on that he was he actually shouts. shouting to Yeah, get, he gets their attention get the and pulls them away from that room. So maybe he was just conserving his energy for presumably the long walk the back. The long, to- cold, <laughs> sh- yelling, shouting, for the tundra, freezing walk. Yeah. Then it makes me wonder how anybody gets infected if you could just like walk away from the zombies. Although, I mean, he did crawl across the entire town to get to this radio station. They can't be that quick true, in, in any sh- way, shape, or form. Except for uh, Laurel Ann and the little girl who attacks. Who dives at them. Yeah. The younger they get, it's, I think it's like they have to have good bones, you know, like good muscles. <laughs> like it's very dependent on how fit they are already. Yeah. And like Laurel Ann's a vet. So like she was already like pretty, pretty pretty fit mm-hmm. and like you know the little girl she was young so she was light able to go yeah it's, like, it's like they ripped the zombies out of a few different movies for this <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we got the c budget the c list movie zombies here the b list movies and then Loreland and the little girl are a list movie zombies <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't say they're a list zombie movie zombies yeah, b plus list there we go a minus like, list when i think about like popular movie uh, interpretations of zombies they're like world war z climbing the yeah they're tower so of fast <laughs> <laughs> they're superhuman but that, that's really not where the fear is derived in this movie there's not a ton of fear in general it's just a lot of what's going on especially at this point i'd say at this point the mystery is pretty much solved in terms of like what the zombies are what the horror elements are we, we found out how the virus is is made we found out how it transmits we found out that this whole town is overrun i mean there's a lot of questions that have been answered at this point so they lock themselves in the room dr mendez uh presumably saves them by running away and 
Grant and Sydney are left to their own devices for sort of an unspecified period of time. Uh, also, the bottle of whiskey is there, um, the important character that is. And Sydney is sort of nursing the bottle of whiskey, writing messages to loved ones on the wall. And she, I think more so than Grant, fears that she's going to be infected or already is infected. They're speaking slight French because Grant doesn't speak French very well. Depending on the situation. Depending on what <laughs> the story necessitates, people's level of French uh, sort of moves around. And Sydney starts to talk in English and she catches it, like in a very obvious way. She starts to, we saw this happen with Laurel Ann. She gets caught on a thought, on a message she's trying to communicate, but can't get across. And keeps repeating it. Mm -hmm. And then you see what you saw in Laurel Ann. The, the spiral out of control, the the repetition that leads to being infected by this virus. What is the word she's repeating? Kill. She starts to understand the word kill. And I think in the movie, it's because of the little girl that presumably her and Mazzy uh, killed. And she dwells on it and she starts to understand it. And that's what really gets her. That's when we kind of realize there's a very powerful scene where Grant basically uses abstraction as a tool to pull her out of this trance that she's trapped herself in. Yeah, the line he says is, how do you take a word, how do you make it strange? And he throws out all this gibberish to pull her away from the trap that this word has created for her. He's trying to make the word incomprehensible. You know when you say a word over and over, it starts to lose meaning? That's what he's trying to do, but abstract it into what could kill mean. And the one I thought was the most hilarious is he... One of the options he throws out is kill is mayonnaise garden. What's a mayonnaise garden? I would have missed it had it not been for the subtitles. But uh, it, I, I mean, I missed it. So it shows how creative Grant is, I think. But he ends up sticking on kill is kiss. Yeah, she has like a almost immediate kiss. connection to kill is kiss. What is kill? Kiss. And it get they get closer and they get closer and they eventually kiss and more or less in this moment. They be it placebo or not, they realize that they can beat the virus and that in this moment they did beat the virus and they rush out of the room in pure excitement of having overcome this, what they thought was the end of her. And they basically do one final broadcast. Yeah. And it's interesting how I think this final broadcast sort of mimics the first part of the movie where Sydney and Grant are at odds arguing about what to say on radio. And at this point, they're collaborating on how do we save the world? I didn't even think about that. The fact that, you know, the beginning, they're very butting heads and at odds. And then by the end, they embrace and kiss. And it's almost like a love story. Very much so. There's like a little love story element tied into this indie horror movie. And I think it, it works. I wish it had been uh, built up a little bit better because I think it pays off well. Absolutely. But I, I wish uh, they had a little bit more time to sort of grow their... Um, I, I take that back. They have good chemistry the whole time. Speaking of chemistry... They're married, right? They are married. In real life, they are a happily married couple. The time of shooting this, I think they'd been married for around 10 years, give or take. And the director said that the chemistry that they had as a married couple defeated basically anyone he could have found to cast for these roles. Stephen McCaddy was basically locked in as Grant Mazzy. And it didn't take too long for them to realize that Lisa Houle, his his wife, was the perfect fit. The, the character of Grant Mazzy is very 
rambunctious and loud and brazen and, and over the top. And it takes a very skilled actor to be the complimentary role of that. And Lisa, having known this man for many years, inside and outside of work, she handles it very well. And I believe the complimentary aspect of her character just makes things so, so well. So, so well done. Absolutely. There's almost not even a question of will they, won't they. It's like once you see them together, it's like they will. So um, this is the part where I'm a little bit more fuzzy on this final broadcast. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of what's going on here? So basically at this point, Grant is trying to tell the people, the world at large, whoever wants to listen, that they have found the answer. They figured out a way to, to beat this virus. And it's, it's such a difficult thing to explain to someone, let alone on a radio broadcast, that the general understanding of everyone at this point is that English is bad. English is the thing carrying this virus. The English language shouldn't be used. And anyone who is using the English language is trying to perpetuate that virus. Grant is doing this radio broadcast in English. He is trying to explain to the world at large that you can beat this by basically pulling away meaning from all these words that you're saying. When you get caught up, build a wall of abstraction around this word to eliminate threat, to eliminate the virus from taking hold. That is how you pull yourself away from the clutches of this virus. And at the same time, there is military, Canadian military, surrounding this town. We hear on a loudspeaker them communicating, uh, is it in French? Yes. In subtitles, it's translated to English. So I sort of lost my perspective on what's in English, what's in French. Canadian military more or less have, have locked down the entire town of Pontypool. And they are speaking in French. And they ask, is Sidney Breyer still alive? Because they had picked up what was being sent off earlier to distract the zombies. And he tells them Sidney Breyer is still alive and he keeps trying to explain that, that this virus can be beaten. But all the Canadian military sees is this man speaking English and he keeps talking in English. On the radio. On the radio. He, he is actively trying to spread this virus. And there's in this moment of, of it's a very heated moment, the score for the, for the movie gets very loud. It gets very pronounced. And there's just a lot going on Sydney's screaming, Grant's screaming, and there's a countdown happening. And, th- and this, this French military man is literally counting down till the bombs are dropped. And we can hear gunshots happening throughout this whole thing. It's very obvious that... All hell has broken loose. Yes, things are very wrong in Pontypool. So as the countdown is happening, Grant is delivering his final speech, which I think is a bit of a tonal shift. We've always known that Grant has been sort of a stick-to-the-guy, uh, almost conspiracy theorist. Yes. Stick it to the guy. Stick it to the man. Stick it to the man, guy. Stick it to the guy. And at this point, he's he's almost addressing. He's he stopped talking to like the audience at large and how to save them. And he starts addressing the uh, military. And he screams, "You are killing scared people. It's what you always do." Which it's an interesting touch. It feels almost as if the writer or director uh, is sort of speaking to us in that moment, rather than Grant. Yeah, it, it, it's a very. It's like he used this movie as a platform to speak out against police brutality or something of that sort. It really did feel not out of place, but something that he spoke through Grant with. And we haven't really talked about this at all, but throughout the movie, there's been sort of a lot of war references, a lot of sort of contemporary things about 
terrorism and insurgencies. Saddam Hussein is, is referenced. Or Osama, was, bin Osama, Osama bin Laden was referenced, yeah. And Laurel Land being a military veteran. It's There was that story he told about like killing people at the at the trailer house with yeah. the, trailer, the trailer park facility. It's realistic in a way. Like when you have a mass outbreak, you might assume like terrorism or insurrection, but it feels also, um, it, it feels like the like they're trying to convey something in all of this dialogue because it really doesn't matter to the story. This is all tertiary. It's it's just you know what seemingly random mentions of violence and 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 horrible things. And I think it sort of comes to a head here. This is where we sort of get the uh, the thesis of what he's trying to say. But he keeps on talking, and I actually don't remember um, the rest of the broadcast. The actual closing is uh, is a pretty powerful line that that Grant delivers. Today's news, folks, today's late-breaking, developing just-across-my-desk news story is this. It's not the end of the world, folks. It's just the end of the day. This is Grant Mazzi for CLSY Radio Nowhere, and I'm still here, you cocksuckers. And as he says that, the military counts down to one. We see the studio shake. We hear what sounds like a bomb drop, and then And Sydney runs, runs in oh, yes. to the booth. And they embrace. And they kiss. And then fade to black. Well, it's not fade to black. It's a, it's a cut. like Cut to black. I, I mentioned it because it's jarring. It's like true. they're, yeah. they're it, doing it so it, we don't see really the It really does feel like you're cutting off right before something horrible happens. Yes. Uh, and then throughout the credits, we have a news broadcast from around the world sort of fleshing out what's happened in the virus. The credits, I want to mention, are very nice. It's not a scroll. Um, the credits sort of come up and each section fades and they're in a nice red font it's uh i don't know it's just a nice little touch for i can't say i've ever paid very close attention to the credits for this movie i'll need to go back and watch the credits uh you know so you know in midsummer where there's credit cards it yeah doesn't, like, it's just scroll. like a, it's like a square like a like a frame yeah so this isn't quite as like uh artistic as the way things were laid out but they're basically cards that come up fade out and like sort of like zoom away from the camera like stack on top of each other kind of like you're going through the like through it yeah that's cool which i think is nice because the credits having the dialogue about the rest of um how the virus has progressed throughout the world it encourages people to sit down and actually watch the credits in a way not many movies do because there's actually a scene right after the credits yeah it's a it's a really cool scene I think a lot of people, I mean, even if they missed it, they didn't watch the credits and they missed it, you know, it didn't really change your viewing experience of the movie. But I particularly love this scene. It's a scene of Grant and Sydney, assuming this is in the future and in the same reality. And they're at a sushi restaurant. I didn't even notice it was sushi. Yeah. So uh, I, I did some research and the director... He calls Grant a sushi gangster. <laughs> That's so weird. So so Grant and Sydney are at this sushi restaurant and Grant is wearing a suit with shades, black shades, and Sydney's wearing a dress. You know, it looks like a frame from Kill Bill. It it does. It it in the the black and white, it starts off black and white, which is another thing. And it it really does feel like a Tarantino-esque, you know, grindhouse kind of thing. Absolutely. Like, like you're about to watch uh, Hellboy. Like this is a this is an opening scene to Hellboy or something mm-hmm. like that. And um, basically, they're having this conversation, and they're kind of talking in non sequiturs. They're they're saying things like, "Where are we going to go? 
And then Grant says, we're going somewhere that we don't know where it is yet. And, and, and these converse, this conversation, it doesn't really have meaning. But if they had context, they could have this conversation and still understand what each other is saying. And eventually it gets to the point where the words they're saying, the sentences they're saying are more coherent and they make more sense. And understanding starts getting applied to the stuff that they're saying. And then it's at this moment, it starts switching from black and white to a full color frame. And I would almost say that it looks like a different camera. Like it, it, the, the set is something we've never seen these. Uh, it looks sharper. It looks more contrasty. Yeah, it, it's, it looks like something taken from an entirely different movie. It's very strange. And I read that during a test screening for this movie, this scene was actually right at the end, uh, right after they cut to black, before the credits. And I just cannot imagine this movie with this scene taking place sort of in canon. It works for me as an after credit scene, but it's wild that it wasn't intended to be that way. Yeah. So Sydney asks where they're going. He says they're going somewhere that they don't even know yet. And then Grant says, And then? Let me steal the loot and knock boots in the free world, baby. Okay. Okay, baby. He shushes her, and it cuts to black, and it says Finn. Now, it's pretty important to understand the mechanics of the virus and how it took hold in the movie in order to understand this scene. Basically, what they're doing is they're speaking without meaning in this post-virus reality where the English language is basically tainted, I guess. And they're having conversations without actually applying the meaning so that none of them could get sick with the virus. And then at the end, Grant says, baby, not referring to anyone in particular. And then Sydney says, okay, baby, directly to Grant, which is a direct term of endearment, which is a no-no in this world. And her intention very much is to be saying an affirmative to Grant. Grant is not looking at her in this scene. She turns to Grant and says, okay, baby. And more or less, terms of endearment are the, the black plague, I guess. I mean, that, I don't understand. I'm not an expert on this, you know, sci-fi made up fake virus. But as far as I can tell, terms of endearment are the guarantee that you get infected and that this thing takes hold of you yes and i find it a little bit frustrating because i want to derive meaning um from like what they're saying how they're communicating but i feel like the movie itself might not be consistent enough to successfully do that absolutely it's funny because i can only go so deep into understanding this virus because the rules that they set for it are already so loose and freeform that it doesn't really matter if you figure it out to a T because there's, it's, it's kind of open to interpretation by the audience as to what this virus does. He doesn't create these phases that we see in zombie movies. Like they get bitten and then an hour later they start getting sick and then they turn into a zombie. There's no, there's no ABC. There's no step one, step two, step three. It's just it might... It might take a hold of you, it might not. The director even went out and said during the director's commentary that why doesn't Grant get sick the entire movie? Even though he's, he's talking and he's saying stuff, why doesn't he get sick? It's a virus. Viruses are the most inconsistent thing that can get a person sick. It might mutate. It might, be, it might 
destroy someone's nervous system or it might do nothing. It might not affect someone at all. So viruses in general are something that's so inconsistent that it's not really something that can give you hard answers for. It's really hard to break down the canon here as well because there is three versions of the Pontypool story. There's the movie that we've been talking about. There was a made-for-radio version that played on uh, the CBC, BBC, and ABC. And there was also a theater production of it. And I, I don't know about the theater production, but the radio version has a different ending where Grant does get the virus and presumably die. Yeah. Along with Sydney. All the dialogue is very similar up to that point in the movie. So it, it doesn't really stand to reason that Grant would survive in the movie given all the same circumstances, but die in the audio version. Yeah. It, it's really hard to suss out what's the difference here. In fact, I find Sydney's death more tragic, actually, in the audio version than Norrell Land's death in the movie. Really? Um, because she, she asked for him to kiss her, which I get the impression that he, she actually means kill. She's asking him to kill her. Kiss me. Kiss me. Which I think is much more tragic than what happened in the Absolutely. And I guess the, the ending of the movie one is, is just a little strange. I mean, it's a little... that they, they get blown up by the military. Like, this crazy, horrible virus takes over their town and they die to, like, bombs by, by human beings. <laughs> Humans were the enemy the whole time. <laughs> That's what it is. The reference is that you're killing scared people. That's what you do. It's just... There was never a virus the whole time. It's been the government. <laughs> well, th- this is the thing. The freaking frogs gay. Is watching the movie, it makes me wonder if Grant started the virus because he, at the very beginning of the movie, is trying to understand the word Pontypool. He's breaking it down, saying it in different ways. He describes what each part of the me- word means. And it makes me wonder, did he cause all of this? He gave too much understanding to the word Pontypool. Pontypool was the w- cursed word. I feel like it could have been. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. Like, There's so many different ways that you could theorize how this started, how, why it ended. It really is something where you just you say it is what it is and you throw your hands up. Yeah. And I think that's what you have to do with sort of movies of the scope. You know, I can't expect a movie like this with I think planned sequels at the time of production to answer all the questions. Absolutely. Unfortunately, those sequels don't exist. Maybe one um, day. Maybe one day. I'm still holding out hope. So I'm curious, this was our first episode of Feargenics, and why did you pick this movie uh, as the first one? Well, I certainly didn't pick it because it's the scariest movie. Well, that's evident. I was able to watch it basically no problem. I, I kind of picked it because I wanted to show that horror can look like anything. Horror doesn't have to look like, you know, The Exorcist. It doesn't have to be terrifying. It doesn't have to be jump scary. It doesn't have to be dark and moody. Pontypool is a pretty light film, I would say. In in most cases, it's a pretty... It's a pretty funny film. It's It's a lighthearted, you know, fun film. With you know a couple gory scenes and a couple kind of intense moments like the call with Ken Loney and the baby, it, but it stays sort of hyper real the whole time. Yes, and uh, yeah, that's why I picked it because, it, and also because it's low budget. I think it's really cool to show that even with low budgets, you can make something unique and interesting. This is a cult classic. Like there's a lot of people that love this movie, 
and it's hard to find. The distribution is kind of weird in which I was at the time of recording this, I can only buy it on iTunes and Amazon for like 60 bucks. Yeah, and the Amazon, uh, I get the impression that is just people selling their personal collection. That is not like an official yeah. uh, sort of distribution method. The only official method I can find is iTunes. Yeah, and, and it used to be on Shutter, and it's not on Shutter anymore, and you go to the page where it is, and it doesn't work. The, the audio version, uh, for instance, the only way to listen to it is somebody ripped it and put it on YouTube. The official distribution method through BBC and CBC those pages are just broken now. Um, you can go through like the web archive and like see where they're supposed to be, but you can't download the audio. And, and I think that makes it a cooler movie. I think when I can tell people that like there exists three different versions of this movie and it's hard to find and they don't distribute it very much and there was a bunch of sequels planned, but they never did it. And there's a director's commentary, but they don't actually talk about the movie. They just talk about the sequels for the movie. Like there's so many interesting little quirks around this movie that, if you show it to someone who enjoys movies and enjoys learning about the depths and, and the inter, inner workings, that it, it's, it's cool. It'll stick in their mind. And I, 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 you, you like this movie, right? Yes, I enjoy this movie. And uh, you know, I would say I could recommend this movie to people who don't even like horror. Absolutely. It's just a weird... It's, it's kind of a thriller. It's, it's just a weird thriller with a couple edgy moments. I'd say there's two jump scares in the movie, which, you know, you just have to deal with if you're watching it. It's not that bad. I mean, you can watch this movie just for the performances. Absolutely. In Grant, fact, towards Grant the end is, of the movie, that's what you're doing. Grant is a fucking rock star. Absolutely. Grant is absolutely wonderful in his role. And knowing that it was almost an accident that he's in this role based off of uh, the way this movie was made, it's worked out really well. Presumably, Grant is the reason why uh, Lisa Hool is in it. Yeah. His wife. Yeah. I keep on saying Grant, Stephen McHale, Stephen McCaddy. Stephen McCaddy Fuck. plays Grant Mazzy. Yeah, there's so much interesting stuff surrounding this movie. Like uh, the adaptation apparently was done in 48 hours. Which really? makes, I mean, I guess that's really quick. But the guy who wrote the screenplay um, also wrote the book, uh, Tom or Tony Burgess. Um, so I guess that's why it was possible. But yeah. it's very quick. I don't even want to turn around a commercial in 48 hours. Like I can't imagine turning around a whole script, a feature-length well, script. I mean, this was his baby, you can assume. Like he he probably did that on his own accord. He 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 probably just sat down and was like, "Oh, yes. I'm so excited for this to be a movie." Probably, yeah. I I mean, it's a, like it's a pretty cool. From, from what I gathered from the director's commentary, they're kind of nerdy. They're kind of like huge film nerds who talk like conceptually which is awesome. Like I enjoy yeah. those kinds of people and those kinds of people are the same people that adapt a screenplay in 48 hours. Sure. And it wouldn't surprise me if he, uh, you know, had sort of had ambition for it to be a movie someday and already had some of it in the process. Yeah. To wrap it all up, it's just, uh, it's a neat little horror movie and I'm sorry you didn't get very scared, but uh, we'll watch a lot more scary ones in the future. Promise you that. I... This is this is easily the least scary of the movies I'm going to show you. I can't say I'm looking forward to it. I am going into each movie as blind as possible, but uh, having seen a few stills from each movie as I've sort of tried to gather posters and like uh, find places to buy the movie, uh, I feel like I'm in for a bit of a wild ride, especially with uh, Goodnight Mommy. That's our next movie. I'm kind of nervous. Uh, I saw a frame where it looks like her face is fucked up and... Um, I guess I don't want to see that, but it, it, I'm really excited because it's it's a completely different movie than than where we are now. We're in a it's a indie budget Canadian 
zombie movie and we're getting to i believe it's german it, it might be german or danish or something of that nature but a german body horror family film i can't wait and if you want to go ahead and come with us along for that ride i'm sure i'll be a lot more traumatized in the next uh, recording go ahead and hit subscribe follow us on facebook and twitter at feargenics or instagram at feargenics official or go to feargenics.com you want to send us a message email us at podcast at feargenics.com i hope you enjoy our descent into madness have a good one guys take care guys Mm -hmm.